Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Amen. We're in uh, 1 Samuel tonight. You can open in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. If you need a Bible uh, to follow along with us, get the attention of one of the ushers and they'll drop one off to you so that you can um, not just follow with your ears, but also with your eyes. And I'm going to begin tonight by praying as we open up our service and then uh, we'll get into what we're going to go through tonight and what God has for us. So Lord, we just thank you that you're here. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to have that uh, amazing time to just worship you, Lord. It is so transformative. It just changes our whole perspective. And, uh, and we thank you, Lord, that we can look to you in that way. And, and Lord, as we turn our attention to your truth and your word, we ask, Lord, that you would please speak to us for such a time as this. Your word is timeless. It's powerful. It's living. And it, it is instructive, Lord. So we just ask you to help us. We pray that you would give us perspective. We pray that you'd fill us with your spirit, with vision, with clarity, with wakefulness, with energy, with expectation and hope, and with an ability to hear your voice. I pray for every heart that's here. Lord, you know the condition and the need that's represented. And I pray, Lord, that not one person would leave here tonight not having received all from you that is necessary. So please, Lord, bless this time as we turn our attention to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I had the the privilege of growing up really in the 1980s and the early 1990s in a smoke-free household. Um, And that doesn't mean that my parents never smoked. There was a reason why it was a smoke-free household. And my father loves to tell the story of uh, his experience because in his mid-teens all the way through until his mid-twenties, he was a smoker and quite addicted to it. But there was a moment that came in his middle twenties where he woke up one morning and he he couldn't stop coughing uh, like very seriously and eventually to the point where he began to cough up blood. And when he coughed up blood, he never touched another cigarette again. There was no program, there was no weaning, there was no, uh, you know, struggle. He coughed up blood, he was done, and he never smoked again for the rest of his life. Now, his older brother, he was also a smoker, and he was a chain smoker. I remember growing up, he smoked solid chain smoking for 56 years, and, 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 and he lived to be almost 90, you know, so he's like that guy in Super Size Me that ate Big Macs every day and yet was like the picture of health, you know? So he kind of broke the mold, but, but a similar thing happened to him after 56 years, he went for his annual checkup and he was uh, x-rayed in his lungs and the doctor told him that there was a spot on his lungs. And when he saw it on the x-ray, it spooked him and he quit cold turkey after 56 years, you know, not, you know, not ever taking a break because of that. And so the point and the reason why I open with this story is because sometimes change doesn't come until it hurts enough to motivate it. And, 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 and that's what I want to talk to you about tonight as we get into this section of First Samuel. We've been studying through the book. We've gone through the first three chapters. And really, we're, we're seeing a nation that has really gone stale. They're supposed to be God's people, but they've become apathetic towards God. They've become indifferent. They've become selfish and inward, and thus they've become corrupt and really godless, which is ironic because they're the people of God, but yet they've become godless. Now, historically, 
1 Samuel takes place at the end of a period of time that we call the period of the judges. And the period of the judges is marked distinctly in the Bible as a period of time where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Meaning that the culture was not to look to God as a means or a guide or a standard, but they were looking to themselves. And thus the whole period of the judges paints a picture of what happens when one nation under God turns away from God. And it's an amazing example to any nation that is called by his name. Now, the early chapters of 1 Samuel are really the culmination of many years of Israel wavering, compromising God out of their lives slowly, and compromising corruption in slowly, to the point where they had become a nation that had a form of godliness or took the name of God in vain upon themselves, but their hearts were far from him. And so thus far in our study, what we've seen in chapters one through three are really the cracks that will lead to the crash in the system and also the man whom God is raising up to build it up again or to put it back together. And so as we get into chapter four tonight, what we're going to see is that the great reset will begin. God is going to bring down the old system and he's going to set the stage for the new system to come in. And so if you look with me at chapter four, verse one, it says that the word of Samuel came to all Israel. God had established him at this point to be a prophet. He had the respect of the people. He had authority from God. And thus he, from Dan in the north, all the way to Beersheba in the south, would travel and he would bring God's word to the people. But it was a little too late. It says, now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and they pitched beside Ebenezer, which means stone of help. And the Philistines pitched in Aphek, which means Strength. Now, it's important to understand who the Philistines are. If you're maybe new to the Bible, there's a whole host of armies and enemies and nations that Israel is not friendly with as you search through the pages of Scripture. But the Philistines are a little bit different than the others. There were the Midianites and the Amalekites and, you know, all these others. But the Philistines were different in that they were citizens in the nation borders. The Philistines lived along the Mediterranean coast. And so they were in the land. They were a foreign people, but they lived within Israel's national borders. They just had no regard for Israel's constitution or Israel's God. And thus they were an antagonist army, an antagonistic force against Israel. So it says in verse two that the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined the battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And so as God had promised that he would be with them, that he would help them conquer, if they were if, with him, they have departed from him and thus God lets them feel defeat. They are taken down, 4,000 men are killed by the Philistine enemy. And it says that when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? So they come up with this brilliant plan. Well, 
Obviously, we just didn't give God the respect he deserves. So let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it, you could pay attention to that word, circle it or underline it, mark it, when it comes among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was one of the most holy, most sacred relics in ancient Israel's worship custom. When God gave Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, which was the portable church that they would carry through the wilderness and then what they ultimately set up in Shiloh, the one part that was the holiest part was the Holy of Holies, and in that was this Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a gold box that had the Ten Commandments in it. It had a jar of the manna in it. It had Aaron's rod in it. It was covered by a slab of gold that was called the mercy seat. And then on top of that, there were angels that had been made out of pure gold that overshadowed that mercy seat. And the idea behind it, it was a picture of the throne of God, and it represented the presence of God. And so the Ark of the Covenant, as it's called in the scripture, represented the glory and the presence of God with the nation. And so the strategy for part two of the battle is let's take the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God himself, and let's send it forth and it will save us out of the hand of our enemies. Now, there was reason for them to walk this way. Remember when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River and first came into the promised land, it was the ark that went first and the waters parted and they crossed over and then around Jericho. And so they're looking going like, how can we fix this? And so they're thinking, well, let's just bring the ark in. Maybe God wants to use a relic. Problem is God is not a God of relics. God is a God of relationship. And they were far from a relationship with God. And when you're far from a relationship with God, you can have all the relics in the world. They're not going to save you from your situation. And so they bring the Ark of the Covenant in, into the battle. And it says in verse 4 that when the people sent to Shiloh, that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwells between the cherubims, and the two sons of Eli... Hophni and Phinehas, remember they represent the old, corrupt, stale system. They were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. That's a wonderful verse, isn't it? Don't you long for the day when the earth will ring again? Unfortunately for these, it's too, a little too late. It says that when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is come into the camp. And they said, woe unto us, for there has not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. But now here's their resolve, these Philistines. Be strong and quit yourselves like men. That means stand fast. Put your feet in the ground. Put your game face on. Don't look afraid, O ye Philistines. 
that you be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. If they overcome us in the battle now, then they'll gain the upper hand and we will become servants of their God rather than them becoming or staying, remaining servants of us. And so the Philistines fought and Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent, and there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. And the ark of God, the glory of God, the presence of God, was taken, spoils of the battle. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. Okay, so the system finally crashes. Israel is put to the worst before their enemies. 30,000 footmen are killed. Among them also are Hophni and Phinehas, the chief captains of the, the waning system. And the presence of God departs. And I don't think you can have a crash than to have those things all happen at once. The system fails and God leaves. And when the system fails and God leaves, you're in trouble. And so as you read on now down through the, the, the text, what you're going to see happen next is you're going to see, first of all, Phineas is going, or I'm sorry, uh, Eli is going to hear about what happens in this whole thing, and he's going to keel over dead. He's going to be almost fast asleep in the temple or the tabernacle while all this is going on. And when he hears word that his sons are dead and that the ark is taken, he falls out of his chair and his neck breaks and he dies. And then Phineas's wife, who is pregnant with child, she hears what happens and it causes her to go into premature labor and she also dies. But as she's dying, the baby is being delivered and she says, name him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed because the ark of God had been taken. Isn't it interesting that the, the very people that had corrupted the system were aware of how things worked and she knew that this is not good. God has forsaken us in the whole thing. And so what happens next, and you can, you know, buzz through the rest of that chapter and look at the details and, and all the rest, but what's going to happen now is that the ark of the covenant the box that represents the presence of God is going to go on a field trip. And for the next three chapters, chapters five, six, and seven, the Ark of the Covenant becomes the main character of the story. If there was a cast of credits for this Bible study that we're having tonight, on the very top would be the Ark of the Covenant and the player would be God. Because that's who we follow now throughout the text as we watch what happens to the presence of God now that he has departed from Israel and we see the effects of all that that is upon the people uh, in the story. And so turn to chapter 5 and let's see what happens first with the Ark of the Covenant. Chapter 5 verse 1. It says that the Philistines took the Ark of God and they brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod, which was one of the cities of the Philistines, within Israel's coasts, but yet controlled by the Philistines. And when the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon, and they set it by Dagon. Now, Dagon was one of the pagan false idol deities of the Philistine people. He was a merman, or a fish god, if you would. From the waist down, he was fins and scales. And from the waist up, 
he was a man. And you can Google that and see the traditional thing of it. But they brought the ark of God into the best place that they thought he would want to be. Where would God want to go if he would, he would want to be in the temple with the other gods? God went in Rome, do it the Rome, went in Philistine. Hey, hey, let's put him with the other gods of the Philistines. There's a problem with that. And that is that when you take God, the God of glory, and you put him in the house of an idol that is not even real, that is very insulting to God. It's kind of like if King Solomon, in all of his splendor and glory, were to come to the United States on official kingly business, and, and for the state dinner, they took him to a McDonald's kiosk at a rest stop on the thruway. I mean, it's kind of what it's like, but, but even worse, because you're taking the God of glory and you're putting him in a pagan temple. Well, God doesn't like that so much, uh, so, and he's not going to let them get away with it, so watch what happens in verse 3. It says that when they of Ashdod arose early in the morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord, and so they took Dagon and they set him in his place again. Listen, listen, if you need to move your God in order to keep him from crashing, all right, listen to me, listen to what I'm saying. If you need to take your God out of stocks and put him into gold so that he doesn't crash, if you need to move your God from one place to another to keep him from disappearing or breaking, then you're serving the wrong God. When you have to control the power and destiny of your God, then you're in a rough place, okay? Because the whole reason why you have a God is because there are things that you can't control. And a God who's worth being called God can control all things. That's why the true and living God should be able to call himself the I am. Because he is whatever is needed by the people that follow him. But if you have to control it or protect it or insulate it, then you're serving the wrong God. Well, they, they quickly realize that there's a flaw in their God, but they can't have that be known. So they quickly prop their God back up. They pump more, they pump more energy into their God and they prop him up. Be careful when the God of a nation is being propped up falsely. And it says, and when they arose early on the morrow morning, the next day, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Okay, so our God breaks the power of false gods. Our God breaks the strength, the stronghold, the grip of the gods that might have power should they be something that they're actually not. And his head is broken too. Even his strategy is gone. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod unto this day. Now God's not done. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with, King James, emrods. Just twist it a little bit and you figure out what it is. Hemorrhoids. That's what they are. <laughs> Even, listen, don't take God to a McDonald's kiosk at a throughway rest stop, okay? He is God. He is worthy of our best, right? 
<laughs> and so even Ashdod and the coast thereof, and when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, the ark of God of Israel shall not abide with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our God. Now, listen, it is human nature, sadly, to put tribe over truth. In other words, you would think that if these were half intelligent people, they would realize at this point that they're following the wrong God, that they should put their allegiance and their devotion to the true and the living God that has power over all the other gods. But instead of doing that, they, they, they kind of realize like, okay, well, this would change our culture. This might mean a change in our behavior. This might mean that there is conflict and strife within our families. And so rather than changing our devotion to a God that can actually help us, we'll just remove the presence of the true and the living God, and we'll keep propping up Dagon. We didn't have this problem before God came in, so let's just move God out. It's a sad thing when people put tribe over truth. But that's what they did. And so they sent, therefore, and they gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them, and they said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried out into Gath. <laughs> that's great. Gath is one of the neighboring cities. It'd be like, it'd be like if, the, if the ark was in Wappingers, and they're like, send it to Hopewell. <laughs> <You know? laughs> see, see how it works out for them. And so they carried the ark of God of Israel around there. And it was so that after they had carried it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction, and he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had emrods or hemorrhoids in their secret parts. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. Let's try Stormville. This is a third of the cities of the Philistines. And it came to pass, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, they have brought about the ark of the God of Israel to us to slay us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go again, watch this, to his own place. Isn't it amazing how they had more respect to the God of Israel than Israel had to the God of Israel. He was just an it to Israel. But, but they acknowledge that he's a him. Listen, there's something powerful that happens with pain. There's something that happens when it hurts enough to, to transform our thoughts on something. To his own place that it slay us not and our people, for there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men that died not were smitten with the emrods or the hemorrhoids, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Okay, so you guys get the drama, and we read chapter 5 because we're going to come back to that for an important principle later on uh, in our study. But chapter 6, we're going we're to fly over, and we're going to get into chapter 7. But here's what happens in chapter 6. In chapter 6, what the Philistines decide to do, they come up with this strategy, this plan, is that they're going to employ Elon Musk and they're going to create a self-driving car. And so in those days, that meant they got a couple of cattle and they made a state-of-the-art cart with really good off-road tires. And they put the Ark of the Covenant on this cart and then they maybe branded the cattle or whipped them or something and they said, let's just let this thing fly and let's see where it goes. And if these cattle 
carry the ark miraculously back to Israel, then we'll know that this was the God of Israel and that it was all him that was doing this all along. But if not, if the cows wander, if they just go somewhere, then we'll just assume that it was bad sushi and Dagon was offended, you know, that we were eating Dagon rolls and, and the hemorrhoids were because of that. And it was just a chance and it, was, it wasn't really a big deal. It was nothing, you know. And so they put the ark on the self-driving car and here's what happens is that it gets on the highway and it cruises right back over the border of Israel. It doesn't wander. It doesn't take the back roads. It doesn't end up there eventually. It immediately and quickly goes back within the borders of Israel into a city called Beth Shemesh, and then from there into a place called Kiriath-Jerim. And that's where the ark would stay then, listen, for the next 20 years. It would stay in this little village while the people were still serving the Philistines and they were still confounded by the flip of the system. Well, watch what happens in chapter 7. It says that the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and they fetched up the ark of the Lord and they brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill And they sanctified Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So they give this guy a full-time job. He is basically the gatekeeper. You protect this. And it came to pass, while the ark abode in Kiriath-Jerim, that the time was long, for it was 20 years. And watch this. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel spoke unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return to the Lord with all your hearts, if you do repent with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods, lowercase g, and Ashtaroth, who was the god of sex and sensuality, from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did, and I want you to mark that word, they did put away Baalim and Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. And Samuel said, after seeing it, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. The idea was the symbolism of their lives were being poured out. The contents of their lives, everything that was dear and valuable and sustaining and life supplying in them and for them, they were surrendering it and pouring it out unto God, saying that we are only yours. We hold nothing back for ourselves. And they fasted on that day and they said there, We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Hopefully they were healed by this time. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Ah, what a difference. Not overconfident and thinking that this was just automatic, but there's actually a healthy fear in them as they're faced with another round of battles. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering 
holy unto the Lord. It's a picture of Jesus who was the Lamb of God. The perfect innocent blood that was slain as a sacrifice, an atonement, a substitution for the people. And Samuel cried unto the Lord. It's prayer. He asked God for help and for Israel. And the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them. He confused them. And they were smitten before Israel, and the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came under Bethkar. Wow, what an amazing thing. And then Samuel took a stone, set it between Mizpah and Shen, and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto has the Lord helped us. That is, that the Lord is their help. So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Pause right there. It is... And it always was God's will and God's intention to bless his people, Israel. And not just his people, Israel, but all of those who are his people in every generation. The very foundation of the call that God gave to Abraham was he said that in blessing, I will bless you. And in you and in your seed, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. Our God is a blessing God, and his intent and desire is to bless his people from the very beginning. But the blessing of God is not unconditional. The blessing of God is conditioned upon the choices and the paths and the actions that we take. God doesn't just throw out a blanket blessing and say, do whatever you want, live however you want, believe whatever you want, and everything's just going to work out for you because I'm just that easy. God doesn't say those things. Now, the reason God's blessing is conditional is not because God's a control freak. Well, I want you to just do everything that I tell you the way I tell you to, or else I'm going to withhold any good from your life. That's not the case. If that was the case, then that would make God narrow and it would make God imperfect to things that he is not. But God is intelligent and God is calculated and God knows a thing or two about life and he knows a thing or two about outcomes that are connected to behaviors. And so God says in his wisdom, if you live the way that I will plainly show you, then you will be a partaker of the blessing that I desire to give. And so God birthed a nation and then he led a nation and then he multiplied a nation and then he sustained that nation and enriched that nation. And then he planted that nation within the borders of what we call Israel. He gave them a constitution from his word. He gave them truth. He gave them skills and ability and understanding. He gave them territory and the opportunity to develop it and make make it something. And he gave them promises whereby if they would rely upon him, he would supernaturally assist them and enrich their lives. God made fruitful seasons for his people and he gave them good defense. And so their lives were blessed so long as they followed the Lord. When they wanted food, there it was. They would go to the store and there was food up and down the aisles as much as they could want. It was all right there for them. 
If they needed an appliance for their home, they could go out and they could purchase an appliance, any range of quality that they wanted. They could choose from something that was small and cheap to something that was expensive and flashy, but probably still was built cheap. But that's just because that's the way things are, you know. But if they needed it, they could go get it. And it probably lasted more than a couple of days. And if they had a problem with it, they could call the company that made it and they would make it right because things were good. If they needed a doctor, they could get a doctor. If they needed medication, it was available to them. If there was crime, there were the proper authorities, and it was dealt with immediately, and people were held accountable and put to shame for wrongful actions. If money was missing from someone's bank account and it was in question, they would call and they would talk to a real human being, and the issue would be addressed because there was integrity in the system. The roads were paved, the garbage was collected, the schools were good and sufficient, the supply chains were solid. There was recreational activities, people could enjoy sporting events and vacations and free travel and movement. Energy and gas was abundant and cheap, or you could say horses and chariots with off-road tires. They never had to think about if the electricity was going to be on that day or if the internet would be up and running. And they lived in a society where they could say, you can have it your way right away. Families were solid. They were a source of rest and not a source of anxiety. And they lived in an economy where they could sow a little and reap a lot. They would invest, and their investments were up and to the right. They could work, they could plan, they could retire, they could live a good life, and they could trust that those that were leading them would do the right thing. Because they were one nation under God, they were accountable to God, and they were following God's way. And thus, they were enjoying the benefits of living in God's blessing. That's what the nation enjoyed. But there's a problem with blessing, is that blessing sometimes breeds apathy. And over time, when you're living in blessing, you can begin to come to a place where you don't really need God on a daily basis. And you can begin to drift from God. And God can become a little bit less. There can be less and less relationship and devotion to God. And God can kind of be pushed to the margins a little bit. Things are good. Life is good. Things are good. See, they wanted to follow, but they didn't want to be fanatic after a while. They wanted his love, but maybe not so much his laws. They wanted his protection, but maybe they could relax a little on his principles. They wanted prosperity, but they didn't want to take care of the poor. They wanted God's goods, but they didn't really want God's goals. And so what happened is that the people began to cut corners, just a little bit, just a little bit, cut corners. And then the leaders cut corners, and the pastors cut corners, and manufacturers cut corners, and husbands and wives began to cut corners, and educators cut corners, and bankers and lawyers cut corners, to a point where ultimately, eventually, God wasn't just pushed to the margins, but God actually became an obstacle because now we can't cut corners any further without stepping over God. And so if we want to cut corners anymore, we've got to push God further out to the point where we have to remove God. Because if we leave God in, then we're not going to be able to keep doing what we want to do. And so now we have to change laws. Now we're going to remove landmarks. We're going to change the system 
and the national conscience grew cold to a point where now you would call and complain about something that wasn't working right, and you couldn't talk to a real person. No one would answer. You would talk to a system. You would go to a store to buy something, but it would cost two or three times more, and it would last less than half the time than it should ever than it would. You would buy it, and it would break the next day. Educators became police officers. Police retired because they couldn't enforce the laws, and prisons became homeless shelters. The land of the free soon becomes the land of disease, debt, debauchery, and demise. And within 30 short years, a little girl stuck in a well for two days that garnered the attention of an entire nation and caused the nation to pray and cry and weep and watch and listen and wonder, is little Jessica McClure going to be rescued from this well? Well, 30 years later, two police officers can be assaulted at Point Blake Range in their cruiser car, and people don't even bat an eye. They don't even care. It doesn't matter. This happens every day. On to the next story. On to the next video. On to the next conspiracy. See, it doesn't matter until it hurts enough to notice. Till you look around and you say, what happened? How did we get here? How did this happen? And then in one day for Israel, war breaks out, people die, God's presence is removed. Isn't it interesting that it was the Philistines? Isn't it interesting that it was people living within their borders that had no regard for their constitution or their God? Isn't it interesting that that's who rose up, who God strengthened, and who took the nation and its system down? And listen, once that happened, they felt it immediately. But it wasn't enough. It took 20 years. It took 20 years after they felt that for them to finally come to their senses. I wonder what that 20 years was like. I wonder what you'd read in the newspaper, in the opinion sections of the newspaper during that 20 years while the Ark of God was just hanging out in Kirjath-Jerim and, you know, the nation was floundering and the Philistines were still prospering. I wonder what they were saying. Like, you know where we went wrong? We went wrong when we came off the gold standard. We went wrong when we, when we allowed the Fed to, and, and, and you just imagine, you could just go crazy with all the, the thoughts of this is where we went wrong, is inflation and debt, and we shouldn't have done that. You, you know where they went wrong? Well, one day they realized it. They said, we went wrong when we pushed God out. That's where we went wrong. We went wrong when we cut corners and we stopped holding the standard of what God said, this is what will be blessed. That's where we went wrong. That's where things began to go south and began to go sideways. And as the awareness of that came into the national consciousness, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4, it says that, sorry, not verse 4, verse 7, verse Two, sorry, there it is. It says that it came to pass that while the ark abode at Kirjath Dream, that the time was long for it was 20 years and watch this, all, you see that word? It says all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. All the house of Israel lamented. That means that the rich and the poor, 
lamented after the Lord. Republican and Democrat. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, they didn't have that. Conservatives and liberals. Males and females. Black and white. Parent and child. Lender and borrower. Manufacturer and consumer. Lawmaker and citizen. They all together realized that this is our fault. We have turned from the Lord. And here's what Samuel said to them again in verse three. He said, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts, if you really do, if it's true, then prove it with your actions. That's what Samuel said. Prove it with your actions, not with your prayers. You realize that they're in Mizpah. You know what Mizpah means? Mizpah means watchtower. Watchtower, that is, it signifies prayer in the Bible, the place of watching. He said, I don't want to hear the prayer. I want to see the action. They're going to depart from Mizpah in, in just a few moments. But basically what Samuel says is if you're serious, if you really see what your departure from God is doing and has done to you, then you return to the Lord with all your hearts. You remove the divisions in your heart. Remove the compromise. Remove every part of what is wrong, the sin that is there. Remove the strange gods, he says, that are among you. Anything that you're trusting in other than the true and the living God and even remove Ashtoreth, which for them was the besetting sin of sex and sensuality, which is a stronghold in the world every day and in every nation. Whatever your besetting sin is, you get rid of it. And Samuel said, if you are serious, then you as individuals Make it your aim to turn your hearts back to the Lord. Where have you cut corners and are you willing to take the long way around? And so it says in verse four, and it's the most blessed verse, it's the turning point in the, in the, in the passage. It says that the children of Israel did. They did put away Baalim and Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. They did it. Now, this was not just behavior modification, and that's what you've got to understand. That this wasn't just like, you know, they, they did a couple of little things and, and showed some kind of gestures that they were going to turn over a new leaf. No, no, no. They did it, which means that they changed the laws. They did what they had to do to set up the Ebenezer Stone to say that this isn't going to happen again. See, they weren't just holding rallies and gathering likes for their cause, or causing people to cheerlead on their side. Do you know what happens when, when we have rallies? We rally. We're making a statement. And don't get me wrong. Statements are good. It shows that there's people on our side. It's encouraging. But do you know what Philistines do when they see a rally? They laugh. They go, <laughs> what are they going to do about it? We're here in the ivory tower. They're down there shouting about it. They've got no power. They can do nothing. It's It's noise. What they did when, when they repented, when they turned, is that they put people in places to purge out perversion. They said, we've got to change things on a grassroots level. They closed casinos. They opened trade schools. They replaced Common Core with Christ's commandments. They ended abortion. They closed Vegas, and they shut down porn. Now, once Samuel saw it, notice verse 5. It says that Samuel said, Then gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And so they gathered together to Mizpah. They drew water. They poured it out before the Lord. They fasted on that day, 
And they said, we have sinned against the Lord and Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now watch verse seven. It says, and when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, cease not to cry. Now, now listen, why were the Philistines afraid when they saw the repentance and the returning in the intercession and the prayer that was being made to God. Here's why they were afraid. It's because they knew what the power and the presence of God could do. They were there when the ark of God was brought into the temple of Dagon. And they saw what happened when the presence of God came into an idolatrous circumstance and situation. The power of the darkness was broken. And they knew that they were no match for an Israel that was anointed and favored by God. And so they were afraid. By the way, did you know that that is the answer ultimately always? See, the answer isn't to to fight against darkness. It's to bring light in. You just bring the presence of God in. They they didn't have to go and like, like at night sneak in and assassinate Dagon or something or, or burn his temple to the ground. All they had to do was bring the presence of God in and Dagon's power was prostrate before God. There was nothing that he could do. Well, watch this. Verse eight, it says this. It says, so the children of Israel said, cease not, verse nine, and Samuel took a sucking lamb. He offered it for a burnt offering holy to the Lord and Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, watch this, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines, and he discomfited them. He confused them. God, they didn't even have to fight that day. God shook, and it says that their plans were confused. You know, that's probably the most potent prayer that we can pray in the days that we're living in right now is that God would come in and that he would discomfit the plans of those that are seeking to hijack the United States of America right now. That they might try to manipulate a circumstance to create a policy of forced vaccinations, but God can confuse that plan by causing nobody to get sick anymore. They could try to get everyone dependent on the government by handing out a universal basic income, but God can discomfit that plan by actually motivating people to go do something so that it doesn't work. They could try to manipulate the system by getting people addicted to things, whether it be substances or television or smartphones, but God can confuse that. He can discomfit it by causing people to start talking to each other again and doing something with their life. They can try to cause people to be crippled with fear. But God can confuse that plan by giving people boldness and causing them to stand up and say no. In verse 11, they leave Mizpah, they stop watching, they start fighting, they stop praying, they start moving. And watch what happens in verse 14, the final verse of the passage tonight. It says that the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron even to Gath and the coast thereof did Israel deliver out of the hands of the Philistines and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Which means that when God was done doing what God does once he's allowed to have his right will place in the nation is that he set them off better than they had been before. He gave to them back the territory that had been upheld or 
controlled by the Philistines and the people of Israel had it back. Do you understand that it wasn't enough for the people to just say they repented? There was a process. There was repentance that was deeply ingrained in the heart and it caused them to return to the Lord and to back up their action and their belief with actions and to do something different and to change things. And here's my fear for you and I and really for our country and our nation, our nation that is supposed to be one nation under God in these days, is that what we're experiencing now doesn't hurt enough to get us to wake up and do something about it. That makes me afraid to think about what, and see, here's what we need as a people. We need a great reset where we say, and we say, stop and think about where we are and think about how we got here. And there's some things that need to be reset. And here's, here's, here's why. Because if we don't produce a great reset, there's going to be a great reset. And you're not going to like what the Philistines do with the place. Trust me. Change doesn't happen by itself. It starts with repentance. Change starts when we say to God, God, I have sinned. I am responsible. I have cut corners. A nation is made up of individuals. And as an individual, I take ownership and responsibility for the places in my life where I have compromised you out and where you have become more of an obstacle to my purpose than I have become an asset to your plan. And God, I need you to forgive me and change me and touch me. That is where it begins. It begins with repentance. And then repentance turns into action where I don't just say it to God, but I allow the changes to come. And then part three, repentance returning, Part three is resistance. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, no. Here's where resistance starts. It starts with you. Okay, listen. If there is going to be change that happens in your life, in any area of your life, it's going to start with some resistance, right? Like if you you want to change your health, right, you have to resist the lifestyle that got you unhealthy. And that takes effort and it hurts a little bit. If you want to change an addiction or a behavior, you have to resist it. You have to say no to it. And ultimately, you can take that from a personal level to a national level or to a worldwide level. And at some point, if things are going to change, then it's going to mean that the people of God are going to have to stand up and say, no, we're not going to go this way anymore. It means the teachers are going to stand up in their classrooms and eventually they're going to have to say no. I'm not going to leave God outside of the classroom anymore. Get another teacher if that's what it costs. It means that we have to stand upon the convictions of what God said, this is what's right, and trust him with the outcomes in spite of the pain that it might cost. Because we know that if he said this is the way that one nation under God enjoys prosperity from God and blessing from God and restoration from God, then it's imperative that we walk according to those ways and sometimes resistance isn't necessarily easy. But if we're not willing to just start with us at the very basic level of saying, okay, the places where I have cut corners, the places where I have fallen short, the places where I have compromised and pushed God to the margins, God, forgive me and teach me and lead me in repentance, then it can never happen 
on a national scale or on a larger scale. And so where does it begin? It begins right now. We're going to sing a song about the holiness of God. And just like the children of Israel gathered at Mizpah, they gathered in church, they gathered under Samuel, and it says that they poured out water unto the Lord. I wonder if you and I are willing to be counted amongst those that would join the contents of our cup to the collective mass of what needs to be poured out before the Lord for our country, our nation, our churches, our families, our marriages, our relationships, and our society. And I ask you, in the quietness of your own heart, does it hurt enough yet? Or what will it take to bring you to the point? Cough up blood, a spot on your lungs, the destruction of an entire economy, the fallout of the entire family unit, the breakdown of any sense of security or supply chain, what will it take? Or is it enough now as you look around and say, oh my goodness, how did we get here? Father, we thank you, Lord, for speaking through the timelessness of your word from a situation that happened so many hundreds of years ago into something that we're facing and standing upon even right now. And my prayer tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name, is that we as a small yet strong congregation might experience a touch from you, a filling of your spirit, a change of our minds, an awakening in our hearts, a vision that brings perspective and the sound of a still, small voice. that we would receive your forgiveness, that we would receive grace to repent, that we would know what it means to pour out our soul like water unto you. And that as individuals and collectively, you would lead us, Lord, in what we're to do, the part that we're to play in this time and season, that you would lead change and repentance in our nation. God, we crave You're being pleased with our nation, your blessing upon our nation and our families again. Help us to find it. So fill us now with your spirit. Lead us in your change and in your truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's all stand together. And let's pour out our hearts, our song to the Lord. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.